And so the hot topic today, maybe you've noticed, is the whole idea of Christian liberty. And you know, some people look at Christian liberty as, how much can I get away with and still get to heaven? Or how much can I get away with and still be a Christian? Others see it as not being bound to any external rules or regulations. And they might quote something like 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Uh, You can't go wrong where the spirit of the Lord is. He he won't let you. He's going to hold you. You There's some people that are so afraid that they're going to disqualify themselves. You know, they've just put so many boundaries on themselves because they so want to be in Christ. And they're so afraid that they're going to hear the Holy Spirit say, that's it, you're out. And, And what they need to know is that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see, what Christian liberty is, it's the realization that I am under grace and not under the law, that the Holy Spirit is directing my actions and heart by conviction and not by the constraint of the law or by threat. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is directing my actions and heart by conviction and not by constraint or by threat. It is the concentration on the internals, what is going on in my heart, rather than the externals. It is the way we deal with things that are permissible, but not biblically defined as sin or as liberties. And so it's not sin, but it's not necessarily beneficial. They're what I would call amoral lives. Now, let me remind you again that from Romans chapter 12 on, Paul is dealing with the life that's on the altar. And so the perspective that we need to have as we looked at chapter 12, as we looked at chapter 13, and as we look at chapter 14 today, and as we look at chapter 15 next week and chapter 16 the week after that, the perspective that we're to have is the life on the altar, the life that is fully dedicated to Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at what is the perspective of the life that has died to sin and given themselves completely to God, the full surrendered life in relation to Christian liberty. So what Paul is going to teach us through this chapter, and I've got three points, But you know me, I can take three hours for three points. So pray for brevity. Just asking, I'm just bringing you in right into this study with me. When I speak, we all speak. Respect, number one, respect the liberties and limitations of other believers. Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Recognize, secondly, recognize the need to amend our liberties and expand our limitations for the sake of others. Recognize the need to amend our liberties and expand our limitations for the sake of other believers. Finally, resolve to honor God in all things and love our brothers and sisters. So resolve to honor God in all things. 
as believers, we can get so hung up on Christian liberties. We often want everyone to feel the same way we do about things. We can take pride in our limitations, can't we? Well, I don't do that. I remember um, one pastor's wife talking to a woman in in the church who was asking about something that was very amoral. And the pastor's wife was so condescending um, in her answer. She was like, oh, that's such an immature question. When you mature, you'll know. And I just thought, never mind what I thought. I had to repent. Um, But we can often think that God is commending us for our, our sacrifices. You know, like I'm loved more. Or I'm a better Christian because I make these sacrifices. On the other hand, we can take pride in our allowances. We think that it's only the weak or legalistic Christians that can't enjoy certain things. I remember, though, when I was dating, you know, as Chuck Smith's daughter, <laughs> which makes it harder to date, okay, just, just for the record. Because everyone knows that they're going to stand and give an account before Chuck Smith. But when I was, you know, at that place of dating, I remember meeting these young men. And they would want to tell me all the liberties. Like, I have the liberty to, you know, do this. And I have the liberty to do that. And I remember praying and saying, God, I'd love to meet a man who's not so much interested in his liberties as in living fully for you. And I remember this one night being at a home Bible study in Huntington Harbor, and this really good-looking guy started talking to me. And he was asking me all these questions about me. And I looked at him, and I said, so do you serve? And he said, well, yes and no. And I'm like, well, what's yes and no mean? He goes, well, I felt that maybe it was becoming an idol in my life, and I just don't want anything to get between Jesus and me. It's not an idol for anybody else, but I had to make sure that it, and I'm in the process of making sure it's not an idol in my life. And I remember being so impressed with this young man. And I said to my girlfriends, that's the type of guy I want to marry. That's, that's it. And if I, don't, if I don't meet someone just like him, I'm never getting married. But that man was Brian Broderson, and I did marry him. But that was one of the things that just, I'm like, I'll follow you anywhere. It was just so exciting to meet somebody who wasn't wanting to know what they could get away with, but just wanting to make sure that there were no obstacles, nothing between him and Jesus Christ. When we get hung up on liberties or limitations, you know what we do? We diminish Jesus. I think of the story that we're told in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appeared and they began to talk to Jesus about the things he would accomplish in Jerusalem. And we're told that, you know, Peter kind of fallen asleep and he wakes up and there's Jesus and he's glistening. He's brilliant. But there's Moses and there's Elijah. And Peter, wanting to say something, suddenly blurts out, Lord, let's build three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
You see, what Peter was doing was he was putting everyone on an equal basis. He was putting Jesus as equivalent to the law and the prophets. And you know, God did not approve of what Peter said to the point that we're told that this cloud covered them. It must have been such a cloud. And a voice boomed and said, this, speaking of Jesus, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And then the cloud was gone and they saw only Jesus. And because they were on their faces at this time, we're told in Matthew that Jesus came and he touched them and said, don't be afraid. You know, we can diminish Jesus by making the law so important, going into rules and regulations, and by doing so, and by telling people, listen to me, I've got the law. We diminish the placement of Jesus. We're no longer hearing Jesus, we're hearing the law. But at the same time, we can be like Elijah and bring down judgments. And in that, we diminish Jesus. You see, Jesus himself wants to speak to all of us. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. We need to let the sheep hear the voice of the Lord. You know, sometimes all they can hear is my voice. I realize this is a mother. My kids say, you know, mom, I don't know if it's you or God. You know, because you're always saying, you know, and I'm like, okay. And I learned to pray it in instead of lecture it in. Because, you know, when I lectured, they were always counterproductive. I always caught them doing the very things that I lectured them not to do. We must see Jesus foremost. He is the completion of the law, and he has taken the judgment that we deserved. Jesus will speak into people's lives what is necessary. He will convict, and he will set free. In last week's lesson, and in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, at the very end, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And so he's, he's going to talk about maybe your liberty or maybe your limitation is a way of fulfilling your lust. You see, your limitation could be your way of, of fulfilling a lust. Yes, a feeling superior, that lust to feel superior. But it could also be your way of fulfilling a lust that will lead you back to sin or would stumble another brother to sin. The hot topic of Paul's day was Jewish dietary laws. You can almost hear the Romans saying, so, are we still kosher? Or should we as Gentiles adopt the kosher law? This was something that was the hot topic. Oh, I see, you know, you're not kosher. Or I see, you're kosher. And and there was stumbling on both sides because some Jews were tempted to go back under the whole law. Some Gentiles tempted to go under the law because of people who were eating the kosher diet. Uh, On the other hand, those who were weak and abiding by the kosher diet, when they were told that they were wrong or they were only doing kosher because they were immature, it, it stumbled them. That was a hot topic in Paul's day. Another one was meat sacrificed to idols because in that day you could not buy meat. If you were a carnivore, Every, part, every 
piece of meat in Italy, in Rome, had already been sacrificed to an idol before you could buy it. So there were those who had the liberty to say, hey, we know that an idol is nothing. They don't really exist. So I can eat this meat with a clear conscience because God made the cow. So I'm fine. So move over. (laughs) But there were others that said, I used to belong to that pagan idolatry. I can't believe you're doing that. And they'd be totally stumbled. So some saw meat as a way of worshiping idols and their consciences were offended and they fell into condemnation. Another issue in the early church, another hot topic was the celebration of certain days. Again, some felt that the Jewish feast needed to be revered and practiced along with the Sabbath. And others felt that Sunday was the day to worship the Lord because that's the day on which Jesus rose again. Yes, they didn't even have Seventh-day Adventists in that day and it was going on. Others were upset that the Jewish holidays were being celebrated because Christ is the completion of the Jewish holidays. So you had all these hot topics that could easily divide a fellowship and a church. And seriously, they were trivials. They were things that we should not allow ourselves to be divided over. So in our day right now, do we have hot topics? No, everything we're just fine about. No, let me mention a few. Alcohol. Do Christians have the liberty or to drink or not? Halloween. Do we have the liberty to let our children or grandchildren dress up. Should we answer the door to those, those little people or not? Easter. Is it all right to have eggs and have Easter egg hunts or not? Dancing. Is it all right to dance or not? Facebook. Is it all right to do Facebook or not? I know some Christians who think Facebook is of the devil. I know people who have been stumbled by Facebook who have gotten in touch with old boyfriends. I know people who have said things on Facebook that should never have been said, pictures posted that should never be posted. And yet there are others who use it as a tool and instrument to minister Facebook. And we don't find Facebook in the Bible. So what do we do? Television. Is it all right to have a television or is it not? Um, I remember John Corson telling this story that they were watching a football game and all of a sudden this horrid commercial, just so immoral, so terrible, came on. And he hadn't felt really good about getting a television, but then he got in a television to watch sports and he disappears. And he goes into the garage and he comes out with a hatchet and he takes the thing and he says, No, who's then? Anyway, it was interesting. And that's some people's conviction. Television, no, not at all. And yet others have the liberty to watch HTV and Chopped. I'm not talking about my liberties, but I think Joanna Gaines and Chip are just so cute. Okay, smoking. You know, there are, Spurgeon smoked a cigar. And I know young Christian guys who get into Spurgeon that sit around and smoke cigars and talk about Spurgeon. I don't know how I feel about that. But that's just a few, a few of the hot topics. These are not outlawed. 
They're not illegal, because if it was illegal, then I'd say absolutely not. Nor are they mentioned in the Bible. But let me say this, that these things neither qualify. In other words, we're not more qualified to God if we abstain, nor are we disqualified if we allow uh, these things in our life. Those are There are those who would say, you cannot drink wine ever. Well, there's real problems. One, Jesus drank wine. Secondly, he turned water into wine. Thirdly, most churches, with the exception of the Calvary Chapel movement, use wine instead of grape juice in their communion service. Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. Let me say this. Brian and I do not drink wine. The only occasions I've had wine ever are at communion services at other churches, and I was shocked every time. We don't drink. Brian has, Brian has four uncles that died alcoholic deaths. And we felt that we did not want to stumble our children by having alcohol in the house or for them to ever see us. Brian abstained from his liberties for the sake of our children because we don't know but what they've got some kind of propensity for this too. Also, we didn't want to be in a place where somebody would see the pastor drink and say, all right, it's okay to drink. But when we lived in London, we would have people in the church come over for prayer. And there was the sweetest man who'd come over every week for prayer at our house and bring me a bottle of wine every week. I mean, I had a whole like wine collection and, you know, I didn't know what to do. I kept hiding it, you know, like, what do I do? He was so sweet. He, you know, he wasn't raised in our culture, in the culture of the United States. He didn't have any alcoholics in his background. So he kept bringing us a bottle of wine. Um, one day um, I asked, I hired a woman to help me clean the house and I gave her the whole collection um, of wine because she wasn't a Christian. So I figured maybe she'd get, I don't know, uh, impressed. But it wasn't, she didn't have the same convictions that I did. But I, I can't do it with a clear conscience, so I'm not to do it. I'm not stumbled when somebody else has a glass of wine with their dinner, but I know that I'm not to do it. Years ago, we were in Sweden. I mean, years ago, I was 16. I'm 56 now. I was 16. So we're talking 40 years ago, just yesterday, you know? I was in Sweden with my parents, and my dad was speaking at this Pentecostal church in Sweden. And we had gone to this camp. Well, afterwards, the pastor and, and the assistant pastors took my parents out to lunch. And as we were sitting at lunch, the pastors all ordered beer. And you should have seen my dad's eyes. I mean, I didn't know they could get that wide. <laughs> and he's just kind of like, you know, my dad, oh, my. That's what he would say. That's like if it was really like death defying. Oh, my. He was such a reactor. Oh, my. I love that. Ooh. I always felt safe. Ooh. And my mom was just like, <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to do with this one, Chuck? And then at the end of dinner, she ordered a coffee. And the pastors, the Swedish pastors were so upset. They said, do you realize that's a legal narcotic And it went around the conference that Chuck Smith's wife was a drug addict. 
I know churches where the women aren't allowed to wear makeup. And when you wear makeup, it's considered, mm, 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 mm. And other churches think it's a sin for women not to wear makeup. <laughs> I remember my mom going to a pastor. My poor mom, she got it all. She, <laughs> like, my dad got away with everything. And my mom went to this conference. And because she had a perm and black curly hair and wore makeup, the women were all like, she said nobody would even sit with her. They were all kind of giving her the up and down, like, hmm, a floozy. <laughs> I remember my father, because, you know, when I was going to high school, I, a lot of my friends came from different denominations. But when you're at a secular high school, you're desperate for Christian friends. You know how it is? You'll take anyone? Like, fine. Well, you said the prayer. Just come here. <laughs> and I remember talking to my dad about the liberties that I saw some of my friends taking that I didn't agree with. And I said, Dad, what do I do? You know, about my friends. Do I go to them? What should I do? And I remember my dad saying this to me, Cheryl, hold high standards Live out those high standards, but don't judge others by those standards. It was so wise. I love that man. And he's with David right now doing slingshots. He's fine. So Paul begins with the need for respect. Verse 1 of chapter 14, he said, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. We are to receive those who are weak in the faith. Even if their boundaries are so strong, even if they have so many limitations. Years ago when I lived in Vista, this woman, and so that's now we're going 30 years, this woman came up to me and she said, you know, Cheryl, um, do you mind if I talk to some of the women in the church about modesty? And I was so relieved to have someone else do it besides me. We, we have a lot of women from Camp Pendleton. They were just coming straight to the Lord, and they didn't know anything about modesty. Believe you me. And so I was like, no, that would be great. Well, this, this young woman, she had been very, very loose and immoral before she came to Christ. And I thought, this is great. But you know what? She went around, and she wanted the women literally to wear something close to burkas. And she went to... You know, this other woman came up to me, a Sunday school teacher, like, I don't, just so modest, saying, are you not okay with the way I dress? And it was like, you? What, what about her in the fishnet hose, you know, with the miniskirt? I, I thought we were going to deal with those. And this beautiful, and she couldn't help being beautiful. She was just naturally beautiful, wore very little makeup. And she was as modest as the day is old or young. I don't know which one you use because I always mix my metaphors. But she was, what is it? Long. Yeah, not. Thank you. I need you. Stay here. So there she was as the day is long, just so modest. And this woman had just reamed her for attracting men. You know, you know, you should cover your face. You should uglify yourself on purpose. And I was like, no, your beauty is your gift from God and you're radiant and the children love you. I had never seen one spot of immodesty in this woman ever. But, you know, we can we can put our limitations or because we've come out of a, a world where, you know, 
And we feel this like I need to cover everything and not have any men look at me because I could stumble if a man just smiles at me. That's my problem. It's not their problem. But we are not to bring young, weak, new believers into trivial issues or discussions. Is one good or bad? Which could stumble them. Years ago, again, going back to Vista, I remember this woman who wanted to argue with me about something that was very trivial. And I gave her this scripture because she was going to another woman say, do you know Cheryl feels this way? And I think Cheryl is wrong. And I, I called her and I said, please don't bring her into this. She's not up to this. She's so young in the faith. Her husband's not a Christian. Her life is so difficult. Let's leave her out. This, let's keep it between you and me. All right, let's keep this issue between both of us. And it was a dietary issue with this woman. She felt that something should not be eaten. And I felt that there was liberty to eat uh, cupcakes. She did not, seriously. And she kept bringing this, this girl into it. And this girl had had anorexia before she was saved. So you bring an anorexic into issues about food, and what's going to happen? So then this woman, the, the uh, non-cupcake person, came to me and she puts the Bible in front of my face. And she says, the Lord told me differently than you. And the Lord told me that, you know, um, look at your call. Not many noble, not many of this. And, you know, so I'm supposed to bring her into this. And I said, I believe you're wrong. Do you know both of, I can say that neither one of those women are walking with Jesus today. You know, the weak one fell away, and the one who hated cupcakes had so many limitations and rules that she ended up denouncing the Lord and saying Christianity was so legalistic that, and limiting, nobody could do it. But let me say this, she did it to herself. Paul is saying, don't debate about these subjects in front of these believers. Respect their weaknesses. Respect their newness. Those who feel conviction over eating meat should not do it. But those who feel no conviction eating meat have the right to do so. What Paul says is when we eat or whether we don't eat, neither one approves us to God. Neither one of us makes us superior or a better Christian. It's not about the externals, but the internals. God is looking at the heart. In Matthew 15, verses 17 through 20, Jesus said this, Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. But to wash with un but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. In other words, it's, it's how your heart processes it. It's the processes in the heart. It's the things, the residuals, uh, maybe left over from your culture or your parents or your background. And those are the things that will defile that thing for you or will make that thing of, of no consequence in your life. We are to respect. And in verse uh, three, Paul says we are to respect each other's convictions. We're not to despise the convictions of others, but recognize that God has received him. 
convictions at all. We have all been received by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for all of us. There are so many out there that all they do is want to qualify or disqualify Christians. That's all they do. Saved, not saved. Saved, not saved. Saved, saved, not saved, not saved. You know, I always have people going, you know, they did this. Are they saved? I can't make that call. Jesus makes that call. But if they believe that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for their sins and that they are sinners and they need the atoning blood of Jesus, if they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he rose again from the dead, Paul says they're saved. Who am I to say, well, they ate a steak. I'm not sure. He says in verse four that we're not to judge one another, but recognize that each of us stands and falls before God. We need to present each other before God. That's God's problem. That's God's problem. That's not my problem. That's God's problem. God is able to bring down conviction on those who need conviction. And he's able to um, undergird those who are weak. And we're told again in verse four, for God is able to make him stand, to stand before God. In Ephesians chapter one, it says that in Christ, we are holy and blameless before him in love. Christ is the one who makes us holy and blameless before God. Not whether or not we eat meat or whether or not we have a glass of wine every once in a while. These are inconsequential to God. It's about the heart. It's about, is our life on the altar? The life on the altar respects every believer because Jesus died for every believer. The life on the altar says, whatever promises in this Bible are yours and mine. The life on the altar says that we are all saved by the grace of God, not by our limitations or our liberties, but by what Jesus alone has done for me. So I respect the values of others and I give them the same grace that Jesus has extended to me. I believe in praying things in. I've seen more transformations, more convictions, more changes when I pray for someone than when I try to demand it, require it, or lecture it in. Secondly, we recognize that every believer, again, stands before God. There are too many people who disciple believers to themselves. And they do it by their own set of 10 commandments. And I know women who have done discipleship classes and then the women they disciple all wear their hair like them. They all dress like them. They use the same vernacular and vocabulary that these other, that the women do. We are to disciple people to Jesus Christ. We are not to create many me's, but we are to put people in the court of Jesus Christ, that they might behold him and become like Jesus. Not like Cheryl, with my limitations and liberties, but like Jesus. We are to create a dependency on Jesus and not ourselves. 
This means that we let every man and every woman get their convictions and their instructions and their guidance from Jesus. Our dependency on Jesus leads us back to Jesus again and again, acknowledging him in all our ways. There was a woman one time, um, she had gotten a surgery that greatly enhanced her figure, especially the top half. And I, I, I think that's, again, that's a, that's a non-essential, okay? That's not, you know, it depends, right? If it's for your husband, if it's fine. But what this woman did is all of a sudden she began to wear low-necked clothes. And, and it didn't help that she was a worship leader for our Bible studies in Vista. And so all these women came to me and they said, I'm totally stumbled about the way she's, you know, I'm totally stumbled about her surgery. Totally stumbled. I said, you're not stumbled about her surgery. You're too old to be stumbled. You've been walking with Jesus. You're mad. Just say it as it is. Uh, and they're saying, would you talk to her? And I'm like, um, not unless I have to. I just, you know, this is not something I want to take up. And then her husband came to me and said, will you talk to my wife? And I'm like, oh. And then she called me. Because I said to him, not unless she comes to me, but don't you tell her to come to me. It has to be on her own. So then she called me. Are you okay with this? I said, well, you know, let's talk. So I said to her, you know, I, it's not what you've done. It's the way you're dressing now that you've done what you've done. It's the way you're showing it off. If you kept it private in the bedroom, I wouldn't have a problem. But when you're showing it off, you know, you're making some of us feel pretty bad about ourselves, you know. And I, and I said, do you know, she goes, oh, Cheryl, I just don't know what I'm supposed to wear. Go into my closet and help me decide what is godly and what is not godly. And I looked at her, I said, no way. No way. I said, okay, you're a leader. Because she was a leader in the church. And she was always having these Bible studies. And then all of a sudden, she quit the Bible studies. And I said, here is the bottom line. I said, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I said, either you're hearing his voice about what to wear. And you're saying, no, no, no. Or you don't hear his voice and you're not a sheep. I leave that with you and I need to get home. And I left. I saw her a couple weeks later, and she was so modestly dressed. And I said, so? She said, I heard his voice. And I was a disobedient little sheep. And she, she was gorgeous, and I think she just needed male attention. And so I told her husband, will you tell her she's beautiful a little more so the rest of us can, you know, take it easy? Our guiding principle that we are to have in all these things is to listen to Jesus and to hear his voice that what we might do all that we do for Jesus. If it's observing a certain day or it's not observing a certain day, that we do it for Jesus. Now, some people feel conviction about Halloween. I know a woman that put a huge sign on the garage door. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Got ached, but she put it on her uh, garage. Now, my mother-in-law for years has been taking every bit of candy, 
and putting a track around it and then a rubber band and praying over every bit of candy that she gives out at the door for the salvation of all her neighbor children. And so I decided to take Halloween and use it for Jesus. And what I do is, and, and let me tell you the truth, I, I used to, I tried rubber banding it around all my pieces of candy and giving it out at the door. First of all, I want to be the woman on the block who everybody thinks is the nicest woman in the world and gives you two candies, not just one, because she loves Jesus, right? And so I tell them, oh, aren't you the cutest little goblin? You, you don't do naughty things, do you? I talk to everyone, right? knows so that's like, it's my day. You know, nobody else is allowed to open my door because they might not make over the children that are coming to the door, and I love to make over them. But I rubber band all the tracks. I did that one year, and I found that the tracks were thrown off and the candy was kept. So I was like, okay, Lord, what do I do? So this is what I do. I put all the candy in, and then I put all the different, I try to get comic book ones, you know, that are really fun, or there's one that has a maze in it or games, and there's a color book one, and I put them around the edge of my bowl that I have the candy in. And they have to, they have to decide if they want one or not. Do you know my tracks always go before my candy? I run out of tracks before I run out of candy. Now I have extra tracks. I've ordered so many, so that won't happen again. And I've had kids say, can I have more than one of these books? I said, you can take one of each type if you want. I also, I want to tell you the truth, I have them in Spanish and English because that's where I live. And it's my opportunity. You know, how many times do you have that many people coming to your door that aren't Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons? You see, Halloween is amoral. It's how you use it. We can use these things for the glory of God to get the gospel out. You know, I'm thinking about how many of those children say, Mommy, Daddy, read this to me. I have heard and talked to more people who were saved by a track. Now, I haven't heard the testimony of those who were saved by the Halloween tracks from my home yet. But in heaven, there just might be a line of those saying, I was saved by the track I received at your house. And I will say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Paul says, when we eat, we give thanks to God as the provider of our food. If we abstain from certain foods, we do it to give God glory. We recognize that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to ourselves. We don't own our own lives. Our lives have been put on the altar, and we now live for the glory of the Lord. And this is to permeate our days and our diets. If we deny ourselves, it's a type of dying to ourselves. And we deny ourselves for the Lord. We recognize that Christ died and rose again. That's the preeminent motivation, verse 9, for everything we do. He is Lord. He purchased my soul. And Jesus is the only one who has the right to judge me or to judge others. According to verses 11 and 12, we recognize that we will all stand before Jesus to give an account for ourselves. Now, let me say this. When Paul is talking about the judgment seat, it's not the judgment seat of, you know, um, goats and sheep. It's not the judgment seat of, you know, saved, not saved. This is the bema seat. And this is the word that is used here in the Greek. It's the bema 
seat. Now I'm saying, I want to make this clear, B-E-M-A, BEMA seat. And it was the place where those who competed in the athletic games, the Olympics, would go to receive their rewards and commendations. So Paul is saying, we're all qualified. We're all qualified. But we will appear there to be rewarded for our sacrifices for Jesus or to be rewarded for the things that we did for Jesus' glory in Jesus' name because he knows the heart. It's a place of reward, not of judgment, not of disqualification, but of reward. And because we're all, we're all in. We've all made it in through Jesus Christ. We're not disqualified by these things, but we want the most rewards. We want to go before that and get as many laurels, as, it, as many gold medals from God as we possibly can. And so this is what we recognize. Now, the reason I spelled it out for you is because one day on pastor's perspective, Brian got the question, what is bemacy? And Brian goes, what? Bemacy. Like, is it like supremacy or what? And Brian goes, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Bemacy. And he goes, I don't know. I go to Raul Reese's church. He keeps talking about bemacy. <laughs> we had an interpretation. Bema seat, which is the, the judgment for reward. At the judgment seat of Christ, all will bow before him. We will all bow and say, you are the ultimate judge of actions. You alone have seen our hearts and you alone have the right to judge us. In Proverbs, three times Solomon says that God hates unjust weights. This spoke to me so uh, years ago about my own judgment of others, my own qualifying and disqualifying. And I didn't kick people out, but I thought they're a lesser Christian. I did. I, there's some things about myself I just don't like. And I don't like that. And I don't even like admitting that I did that. But I felt that way. Oh, they're lesser. And I'm better because I don't do that. And I remember reading that and I'm thinking, how does this possibly apply to my life? You know, it's so like OT. Old Testament. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, you have those unjust measurements in your heart and in your mind, and they are an abomination to me. I want you to get rid of the way you're judging people, the way you're weighing people in the balances. You don't have that right. This is what you have the right to do, to love everybody and put them in my grace and pray for them. That's what your right is. And I remember all of a sudden the conviction of the Holy Spirit falling on me and feeling just so remorseful of all the judgments that I had held. And um, still, man, sometimes I get so mad at that old Cheryl. Glad she's gone. In Judges chapter 22, we have this story that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were coming back um, after helping the other tribes conquer the land of Canaan. But remember, they had received a settlement on the other side of the Jordan. But they thought, you know what? In years to come, 
What if they try to say you're not Israelites because you live on the other side of the Jordan? So they built an altar that was a lot like the altar at the tabernacle. Well, those on the other side of the Jordan received word, Eliezer the priest, that Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh had fallen into idolatry. And having just left the battle, they were already building altar to another God. And so Eliezer got all the men of Israel to arm up and they were ready to go take their brethren down in the name of God. And they crossed over the Jordan and Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh met them at the altar. And they said, no, no, you're wrong about us. We have not fallen into idolatry, but we want to honor God. And we want you to recognize that we honor God and not forget that we also want to serve the Lord, our God, and not say just because we're on the other side of the Jordan, we're disqualified from being Israelites or the promises of God. At that time, Eliezer said, by what you have said, you have spared Israel from bloodshed. You see, so many times we can think something is going on in somebody's heart and life when that is not at all the case. When we judge by externals, we can misunderstand and misrepresent the heart. But Jesus, as the great judge, sees the heart and looks on the heart. Finally, we resolve when it comes to Christian liberty that we are not going to do anything, according to verse 13, that will stumble another believer. We are not going to vaunt our liberties, nor are we going to hold everyone to our limitations. Even though it is not a sin, there's nothing unclean in itself. It's amoral. It's how you use and what you do because God created all foods. God created every day of the week. He created even Mondays. Next, we are going to resolve to love our brother. If our brother or sister is grieved by our liberty, then let's drop it because love is willing to make a sacrifice. We live in a very selfish generation. Would you not agree? Sacrifice. Have you noticed in our culture, sacrifice and abstinence have become evil and bad concepts? People don't understand our soldiers. Why do they do that? Why would they risk their lives? You know, because, you know, freedom is no longer um, something that's held in, in esteem in the United States. And so when our soldiers are going to battle for the freedom to worship the Lord that our forefathers went to battle over. It's unappreciated. People don't understand. Why would you sacrifice? You know, if We have slogans like, if it feels good, do it. Or what about you? We hate to be put out in any way. We hate to be inconvenienced. We hate to be delayed. We hate someone pulling in front of us any obstacle that impedes our progress. We hate to be moved. And I, I'm just talking like, could you wait in that line over there and not this line? I had that happen to me just yesterday, and I was like, remember what you're teaching on. Okay, okay. We hate to have to adjust to change. 
We hate sacrifice of any type. Is that not true? Our thought is often, why should I be the one to change? Let them change. I remember hearing a story of a um, ship that saw another light and they said, you need to move. And the message came back, I'm not moving. You need to amend and move. And the ship said, I'm a big old tanker and I could run you over. And the message came, I'm a lighthouse and you could crash. But often we feel that, why should I be the one to change? Amy Carmichael called this a chance to die. A chance to die. You know, we, we like to say, oh, I'm dying to myself. Or we like to keep it this really lofty concept of death to self. Like, no, that can't be about my liberties. That's got to be about something else. You know, like I'm denying a Krispy Kreme's donut this morning. You know, like that's our big liber- you know, that's our big sacrifice for Jesus. But you know what? Those places of self-denial, they hit much closer to home. They hit those places that we feel we have the liberty we have no convictions about, but somebody else has stumbled by. When the liberty is distracting from our good, all the, the, the good things that we're doing in the Lord, that people can't see the good works because they're so hyper-focused on the liberty, it's time to put the liberty away. When the liberty is drawing more attention to itself, it's time to abstain from the liberty. We resolve to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy. To make it our conversation, the way we live, our interaction about the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given us. About the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And about the joy that is ours in Christ. When any of these are interrupted. When I'm feeling bad and I'm not feeling that righteousness of Jesus Christ, when I'm feeling an unrest in my soul, or I don't have that joy, I have to go back to heart examination. Is there some liberty that I have allowed in that is keeping me? This is my resolve. If, if I feel a loss of joy, a loss of peace, or a feeling of guilt, I need to go back to Jesus because when we're, when we're all right with the Lord, we have that sense of I'm right with God. We have that peace and we have that sustained joy. I have had those times when my peace is gone and I have to go, okay. I remember just a few years ago, that peace just going away and going into um, my favorite chair, going into my favorite chair, literally, um, kind of crawling up into it and saying, Lord, what's wrong between us? Why, why don't I have a peace? There's something that's wrong. And just going through a heart search, and there was something that was not sinful at all, not even in the least bit sinful. But the Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to sacrifice this for me. I want you to give this to me. And at that point, I gave that thing to Jesus, and it was a physical thing that I had to give to Jesus, something that still to this day hurts so bad. But I had to give it to Jesus. And when I gave it to Jesus, even though it hurt and I, I bewail the loss, 
the peace of God came in and took over again. Liberties and limitations often have as their goal to feel better about ourselves. Instead, we resolve to pursue the things that make for righteousness, peace, and joy. We pursue habits and disciplines and occupations that promote righteousness, peace, and joy. We pursue actions and attitudes and activity that build believers up spiritually. Resolve that if you have a doubt about a liberty that you're taking, if your liberty causes another person's faith to be destroyed or could have the potential to destroy somebody's faith or to weaken somebody's faith, then you need to get rid of it. Years ago, Brian was teaching about Christian liberty in Vista, and he, he hit the subject of liquor and wine, and he said, you know, I don't drink, and this is why, and I would caution you about drinking, especially in front of young believers. And the girl next to me was very vocal. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. I totally disagree with him on that one. And so I was like, okay, let's talk later. He's preaching. So when Brian finished, I turned to her and I said, okay, what's going on? She goes, oh, years ago, I used to be like that, like totally not drinking, my husband and I. And I was, you know, a counselor for a high school group. And uh, the pastor, the assistant pastor, took us all out to pizza after uh, one of the retreats with the kids. And he ordered a beer. And he, she said, I was so stumbled by that. I got up and I, was walk, I walked outside the restaurant. And I was crying. He came out and he rebuked me. He just reamed me over the coals for my bigotry against liquor because we all have liberties. And now I drink whenever I want and as much as I want. And I remember saying to her, well, you know, be careful with that. And I was so grieved with this pastor, I really was, with what he did to this young girl because he did not respect her weakness. You know, and he, and he bought it, he, bought it he, he, he ordered beers for all the counselors, some of them underage. Years later, that girl stopped going to our church. She... She stopped going to church altogether. We had a mutual friend. And I said, where's she at? And my friend, not knowing my conversation. So this is friend C, not knowing my conversation with friend B, just in case you're getting confused, said to me, oh, she's got a real problem with alcohol. She was destroyed. Destroyed. Her, her faith was weakened. Through that, we have to be so careful. If it weakens someone's faith, don't do it. If you have doubts about whether you should or should not, you know, again, Paul says, so whatever is not a faith, what you can't do with a clear conscience is sin to you. What you can't do with a clear conscience, still feeling the righteousness of Jesus Christ with peace and with joy, what you can't do and keep all those things intact don't do it. At the end of the day, the life on the altar cares most about living for the glory of God. 
It doesn't matter. Whatever I don't do on earth, I get plenty of in heaven. I get a fullness of joy. It's not, it's less about self-pleasing, about edifying myself. It's about what I can do for the glory of God. And you know what? When I am doing for the glory of God, I get a foretaste of glory. Don't you? When you are making that sacrifice for the glory of God, you feel that glory. When, when you are, you know, serving the Lord, you feel that glory. We are partakers in that glory here on earth. At the end of the day, the life on the altar respects the liberties of some and the limitations of others. The life on the altar recognizes that all believers must receive their convictions from God directly. And it resolves to resign any liberty that might cause someone's faith to be destroyed or weakened. Life on the altar makes Jesus preeminent. Not self, not Moses, the law, not Elijah, judgment. But life on the altar makes Jesus absolutely and always preeminent. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we might live those lives on the altar, that we might feel the power of Jesus Christ surging through us, that, Lord, there would be no obstacles at all between us and you. Lord, that there'd be no obstacles between us and our brothers and sisters, that our fellowship might be full. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, let you be the preeminent one in all things. Let our lives be all about how can we please Jesus Christ and not about how can we please ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.